0: The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Good afternoon. It is a real honor and privilege to... Have this opportunity to speak to you. I don't feel I deserve it. Uh, Sue and I are so grateful to be a part of this church. Thank you for making us feel welcome. So I didn't want to start out that way. We are truly blessed to hear Pastor George preach regularly from this pulpit. So thankful that he is our shepherd. And we are so thankful for all of you. We are thrilled with BBC. We love this church. We love you. And uh, please accept us with all our deficiencies. You have loved us. You've been kind to us. Shown a lot of hospitality to us. And truly, Baltimore Bible Church has made our move from Michigan to Maryland last December. Has made it... A soft landing. Uh, we struggled at first with moving away from home, uh, where we had been, spent our lives uh, for almost 68 years. And uh, the more we have discovered, though, we, we love this state. It's a beautiful state. And Baltimore and Maryland are rich in history, and we're learning more and more of that all already. And uh, the end of July, when my Michigan grandsons were here, we cheered on the Baltimore Orioles to victory. We actually cheered for the Orioles when I've been a Tiger fan all my life. And I will not root for the Orioles when the Tigers come into town in September, by the way. But otherwise, I'm happy to cheer for the Baltimore Orioles. However, there is one thing I'm very disappointed about. There are no White Castles in Maryland. I don't know if you've heard of the slider made famous by White Castle hamburgers, if you want to call it that. But there's a lot of them in Michigan, a lot of them in the Midwest. Now the slider, I will admit, is about one ounce hamburger and about 10 ounces grease. And I know it's not healthy and I was known as a pastor to make My plans to stop at a hospital that was close to a White Castle. Or arrange my my lunch time to go stop by the White Castle. I know it wasn't healthy for me and I probably should go back to the hospital to get my veins drained out of all that cholesterol and grease after going there. Uh, The church, uh, when we left in Clarkson, Michigan, gave us a number of gift cards, including a White Castle gift card. So I still have $50 on a gift card I haven't been able to spend here in Maryland. I have to use it back in Michigan. Truly, Baltimore Bible Church has been as close to a perfect church to Sue and I uh, that we have seen. I know it's not perfect. No church is perfect. No people are perfect. In fact, our coming here has made it more imperfect But uh, we, again, are very thankful. Be patient with us as we're trying to get to know you, remember your names, and we still will falter with that, Uh, but we want to get to know all of you and uh, want to be your friends. Our text is going to be Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, just four verses this afternoon as we read God's Word, therefore... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another's more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Shall we bow in prayer? Holy God, we need you. We depend on you. You are truly the right, righteous one, the one and only true God. May we bow in submission to you, especially as we look at this text This afternoon, Lord, I'm not deserving of this opportunity, but I pray that you will take these feeble words and take this word of God, which is inspired, inerrant, authoritative word, and plant it deep into our hearts today that we would be more conformed to your precious image. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think it's a secret. Or a shock to any of us that I would say that our society is very self-absorbed. My generation, called the baby boomer generation, is called the me generation. But then I discovered the millennials are called the me, me, me generation. Three me's. I'm not certain about generations X and Z. I'm skeptical that they probably also are part of the me generation too. We also live in the world of selfies. Never knew that term a decade or so ago. Where everybody's posting their selfies. Millions of selfies are taken every day and posted on social media. I also learned from a New York Post article that more people die from a selfie than from a shark attack. Because they take so many risky selfies... And perish in doing so. And I believe, as a result of this me centered generation and our society today, there's been a significant rise of disharmony, of dissension, of conflict throughout our culture. I have a question for all of us Are you and I contributing to that? Or are we contributing by our actions to harmony in all of the relationships that we have as husbands and wives, as siblings, as fellow church members, with our neighbors and our community? So we've titled this message, How to Build Harmony or How to Foster Harmony. The Church of Philippi was established by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. We read about that in Acts chapter 16. Two of the more familiar converts are Lydia, the seller of purple, and the Philippian jailer. And probably the most famous verse in my thinking is Acts sixteen thirty one: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul was thrown in prison along with Silas because they cast out a demon of a poor slave girl. Her master was enraged because he took away their income. She was a fortune teller, and he created the mobs against Paul. They beat him and threw he and Silas into prison. So this book of Philippians was written while Paul was in prison, probably uh, while he was in prison in Rome. And as he opens this letter, if you want to turn over a page to chapter 1, verse 3, he says this about them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And throughout the book of Philippians, there does not seem to be any major doctrinal issue or moral issue at stake. It was a healthy church. But tragically, throughout chapter 2, and particularly chapter 4, we notice that disunity seemed to be gaining ground within this church. Now, there will be three major points that we like to cite as we look through these four verses, and we will focus most of our attention on the third point. First, we want to notice reasons to build harmony. Reasons to build harmony. Verse 1. Let's read that once again. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any, affection and compassion. Paul begins chapter 2 with the word, therefore. And many of you probably heard this before, that he's referring to something he has already stated. And we need to notice key words. Therefore, or even the word but, can be a very major juncture in a text. And therefore, he's referring back to, I believe, especially verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. And particularly, verse 27, notice, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain abs- absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." Now, back in Philippians 2.1, we have four if clauses which in the Greek language are called first-class conditions, which make them certainties. And the if can be translated as since or because. Since we have all of these blessings, we have experienced them. They are certainties in our life. And Paul gives four reasons why we should be building harmony in our lives. And I will highlight these quickly for you. First of all, we notice encouragement in Christ. We are encouraged in Christ. Speaking of, I believe, the union we have in Christ through our salvation. Numerous times in Scripture we read this phrase, In Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, we are united with Christ. We are never alone. After my mother became a widow several times, she would say, Glenn, I am so alone. And I would remind her, Mom, you have Jesus. You are never alone. You are in Christ. And whatever our situation, we are uniquely by God the Spirit joined together as believers in Christ. He comes alongside of us. Secondly, we notice another reason the comfort that comes from God's love. That is a comfort. Greater love hath no man than this and a man lay down his life for his friends. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Are you blessed by his love? Are you amazed by his love? That we as poor, wicked sinners, Christ would die for us. We love him because he... First, loved us, and nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we notice the fellowship that we have with the Spirit of God. When Christ ascended, He poured out His Spirit on Pentecost upon the church of Jesus Christ, and ever since that, every believer is indwelt by God the Spirit. We're reminded of that. In a significant text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What? Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Which causes me to shudder. As I think about my thought life, my actions, my speech, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by God the Spirit. We have fellowship with the Spirit. And God the Spirit is called our Comforter. Tenderly coming alongside of us, nurturing us, encouraging us. He is our teacher. He secures our salvation among other things. Then, fourthly, a fourth reason to build harmony is the affection and compassion. We have received the deep affection and compassion of our Lord, His tender mercies. Compassion can be translated as tender mercies. We have experienced those firsthand. And because God has shared his compassion with us, we should allow that same affection, <clears throat> excuse me, and compassion to be showed with, shared with one another. Those compassions and affections. When one in our body hurts, we all ought to hurt. When one in our body is rejoicing, we rejoice with their successes. We're not jealous of them, for we are joined together as one in Christ, with the body of Christ of all believers and united with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul gives us four reasons in verse one why we ought to promote harmony. And these are just a few of the dozens and dozens of reasons why we are blessed. Brothers and sisters, are we blessed? We are richly blessed. And we should never forget that. We have received the massive goodness of the Lord. And our gratitude for these blessings should motivate us to live in harmony with our spouse. With our brothers and sisters. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. How can we rip apart other Christians when we are so loved by God? But then secondly, as we come to verse 2, we have the reason to build harmony. In verse 2, the request by the Apostle Paul to build harmony. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul's earnest request was to complete his joy. He is, in other words, saying, make my day. Philippian people that I brought to Christ, that I mentored, make my joy complete. Well, let's stop a minute. Paul's in prison. He has been persecuted. And he's saying, you can make my joy by praying for me to get out of prison. He doesn't say, make my joy by bringing me lots of money and lots of food because the food here in prison is horrible. No, he says, make my joy complete. By being united in love and spirit and mind in one purpose. That puts me to shame because so often my prayers are for me and he's praying for them to be living in harmony. Paul says it four times in four different ways here in verse 2. We won't elaborate on them. I think the text makes it very clear. He says, of the same mind, Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and notice spirit is not a capital S, uh, can be translated soul. One commentator said, we, we are really soul mates of one another, are we not? As brothers and sisters in Christ. And then intent on one purpose, and what is that one purpose? For the glory of God. Not the glory of self, not the glory of BBC, for the glory of God. And along with that, to present a clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there may be people here today sitting with us, don't know Christ. And there are people with us out in the world who need to know of the blood of Jesus Christ that will cleanse them of all their sin and unrighteousness. So harmony ought to dominate our lives my mom, bless her, she prayed often that we as siblings would always be in harmony. Now that was tough when we were teenagers, when we were at each other's throats. But even as adults, she wanted us always to be in harmony and always to get along well. And for the most part, God answered that prayer. But God also wants us to be in harmony. Jesus Christ. In his high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 22, said "The glory which you have given me, I also have given them so they may be one, speaking of his disciples, that they may be one just as we are one, as the Holy Trinity are one. Paul was also, he was also really concerned about unity in the Philippian church. Because in chapter 4, verse 2, he makes this message known. I urge Yodia, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Can you imagine if we received a letter from an apostle naming names of two ladies or two men that need to get their act together, that need to live in harmony? That would get everybody's attention. But through the inspiration of God the Spirit, these two ladies who were working together needed to put their differences aside and work together once again. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 reminds us, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul's request to build harmony found in verse 2. Before that were the reasons to build harmony. But now number 3, the requirements to build harmony are found in verses 3 and 4. And my friend, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the tough part. And this is where we will spend some more time this afternoon because these are crucial requirements and responsibility if we're going to have harmony with one another. If we won't do these, we're almost guaranteed in the home, in the workplace, and at church to have disharmony. Having served in two churches for the last 46 years before we retired and came to Maryland, I've seen my share of disharmony. Now, in the big picture, God wondrously blessed. There was a a great spirit. But tragically, there were those episodes and times of disharmony. And at times, I mean, it just broke my heart to see men and women split up in marriage. Members that would not talk to one another again. And I just shake my head. How can that happen among God's people? If God's people would put these things into practice, I believe it would transform our relationships in the home, in the church, and in the community. It would have saved a lot of marriages. It would have healed a lot of broken relationships. It would have prevented a lot of discord in our churches. Let's read verses 3 and 4 once again. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility. Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And I notice in these two verses five requirements for us. They're pretty simple. Probably outlined them better than I have, but five requirements to build harmony. The first requirement is very clear, the start of verse 3, don't be selfish. Stop being selfish. New American Standard Bible uses the word selfishness. The ESV translates it as selfish ambition. The King James Version uses the word strife. Selfishness, we know it very well, we could probably all define it, means to be self-seeking, acting for one's own personal interests, regardless of the consequences and the divisions that can occur. This word selfishness is one of the words in Galatians 5.20 listed as works of the flesh. Among some of those awful works of the flesh is the word selfishness. Paul warned about this in chapter three. If you want to flip over to chapter three, verses eighteen and nineteen. He says, For many walk, this is three eighteen. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even as I weep, that they are the enemies of the cross. Who are they? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, some translations their belly whose glory is in their shame, who have their mind on earthly things. Aristotle used this same word that's translated selfish in our English Bibles to describe politicians of his day who were self-serving, who would do whatever it took to get into office. Does that sound kind of familiar? Paul says we need to back off. Again, we all know what selfishness is. We, We struggle with it, don't we, every day? What are some of the first words a child learns? Me, mine, as they fight over things with their siblings. This same word also is used by Paul in chapter 1, verse 17, and there it is translated selfish ambition. And the tragedy in chapter 1, verse 17, it was describing those who were preaching Christ out of envy. And rivalry, hoping to add affliction to the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. When I read those words, and I'm familiar with that passage, I'm appalled. I'm shocked. While Paul is down, they're kicking him and doing that to him. You don't kick a guy when he's down, do you? But that's what selfish ambition will do. Please turn over to James chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Familiar verses, I believe. But a reminder here and a warning, James chapter three, verses 14 and 15, says, "But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual." demonic. I want to ask you to turn to Romans, but another passage, Romans 2.8, further warns, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then also in 3 John verse 9, there's only one chapter, we have this phrase, Diotrephes loves to be first. I mean, again, isn't that the natural impulse? We want to be first. We want the best, the biggest. It's all about me. Selfish ambition. Well, tragically, that was a problem among Jesus' own disciples who had a major conflict and a clash when James and John wanted to be first, they came to Jesus. We read of this in Mark chapter 10, verse 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your glory. Can you imagine the audacity of James and John doing that? When the other disciples heard about it, they were incensed. Why didn't we think of that first? They got to Jesus first about this. and Jesus interceded. And his response had to humble those arrogant disciples at that time because we read further on in Mark chapter 10, verse 44, Jesus said, And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Can you imagine? Jesus coming to them and saying, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And here you're arguing about who's going to be first? We do that too, don't we? And perhaps some good questions to ask ourselves. First of all, am I pushing my own personal agenda above God's agenda? Am I pursuing in my relationships what's best for others or what's best for me? We need to reevaluate our relationships and how we act and react to one another. Two weeks ago, I was very gratified by seeing on the news and then seeing it on YouTube later on of a Little League baseball game. I think it was a championship series. In the first inning, I believe the pitcher beamed the batter. Thankfully, he had a helmet on. He was on the ground for about two minutes. Finally got up and went to first base, and the pitcher was crying. None of his teammates came to console him. That batter that got beamed by the pitcher went over and gave him a big hug. He was not thinking about himself, but thinking about that poor pitcher. Unselfish living, great sportsmanship. And as we move on, the next phrase in verse 3 builds on this thought where the scripture says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The second requirement, if we're going to build harmony, is don't be conceited. King James Version translates as vainglory. Conceit can be also translated vain conceit. And conceit, as we know, is a highly exaggerated view of ourselves. It is self-love. It happens when we may not speak it verbally, but we think in our minds, I am so awesome. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, we ought not to think of ourselves more highly. Stop thinking of ourselves more highly. Or a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter of love, says that love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. We need to get rid of our conceit. And our pride. Someone once said it can be very telling when somebody enters a room. There's already a group of people gathered there and and they come in and verbally they may say, I'm here. Or non-verbally they may make it clear, I'm here. I'm important. See me. Notice me. It does kind of remind me of a situation when our son was six years old and we had a group of boys in our house for a birthday party, it was uh, the end of the year, he was born on December 31st, and somehow we kept our four-year-old out of the house for a while, but he, she finally came in to this group of boys in our living room and she announced, boys, I'm here! And yeah, a toddler, a four-year-old might say that, but how many times do we say that in our heart? We should never do anything to be seen of others. We can't be thinking in our hearts and our minds, how can I get recognized by doing this? Jesus made it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, we should not do things to be seen of others, particularly in three areas. Our prayer life, our giving, and our fasting should not be done to be seen of others. In fact, Jesus said that about this. He said, Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. We've lost the reward when we do anything to have a pat on the back, to be seen of others. I think we all know how destructive pride can be. The very familiar verse in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, reminds us that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Conceit is thinking of ourselves more highly than others, as myself, as yourself before others, when we ought to be thinking about their needs. We can be overwhelmed with a sinful love of myself, of me, of ourselves. It's all part of our sinful flesh. We aren't going to eradicate our sinful flesh in this life, but we need to walk in the Spirit so we will not fulfill these lusts of our flesh. Draw closer to God and He will draw closer to us. I remember a number of years ago playing in a church softball game and I was on a hitting streak and and I got up to bed and I thought, I think I'll try to impress the fans with my hitting today. And I struck out. I struck out in slow-pitch softball, of all things. And I'm reminded, therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. And then two years ago, we had an intramural softball game at our church. And I learned afterwards that the guys had planned if I hit the ball in the outfield, the outfielder was going to let it pass him. They wanted me to hit a home run at age 66. So I hit it into the outfield. I surprised myself that I hit it that far. And I ran out of gas at second base. (laughs) I couldn't get past second base. I needed a break. I needed an oxygen tank before the next batter came up to base. So I, I disappointed them I didn't hit the home run. We just have to be so careful. And ultimately, we need the convicting work of God, the Holy Spirit in our life, who indwells us already to convict us of the sin of conceit, of pride. And there are times we need a friend, a spouse, lovingly to come alongside of us and say, brother or sister, you need to work on this area in your life. As Proverbs 27 reminds us, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another as they speak truth to us about these issues. It's hard to hear, but something absolutely necessary. As I mentioned earlier, the King James Version translates this word as vainglory. I like that translation. Because self-glory, conceit, is vain. It is empty. And we need to remember that all you and I have is of God. Yes, God may have blessed us with some abilities, with some talents, with some gifts. But it's not to brag about. It's all of God and God's work of grace in our life that that can even happen. Without Christ, we are... Nothing. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's something to be proud about, our great God, and give him all the glory. This verse says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And by the way, nothing still means nothing. Do nothing by selfish ambition or conceit. Now, after two negative statements, Paul gives a positive command in verse 3, and it begins with the word but. There's where a significant word. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. The third requirement then is to be humble-minded. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited, but replace it with humility. This can be translated humility of mind Lowliness of mind. And humility means that. To be lowly in mind. To have a deep sense of one's littleness. To act in modesty. Without arrogance. This word humility, it is believed, was not really a word that was found in the Greek language. That Paul had to maybe make that up. Because among the Greeks, humility was an idea of derision. Occasionally I will compliment one of my teen grandsons about something they've done, and occasionally their response is, yeah, I know. Now, I chalk that up to youthful immaturity, but how many times do we as adults in our hearts say, yeah, I know, I'm good at that, and lose our reward for what we've done? Uh, What we're good at is all of God and all of God's grace. When we were saved, we came in humility before him. As Jesus said in the Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. We came in spiritual abject poverty. Nothing to offer, nothing to bring of ourselves. As Paul writes in Ephesians, it's not of works, lest anyone would boast. It's not anything I can do at church or keeping the sacraments or whatever actions, it is all the grace of God in Christ alone. We have to come the same way in spiritual poverty, humbly admitting that we are sinners, that we are lost, we are in need, and crying out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how one is saved. Realizing the death of Christ is all-sufficient And putting our total faith in Him alone. And again, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, we urge you to speak to these prayer counselors after the service. They would love to talk to you. My friend, we need to live with a deep sense of dependence on the Lord. Please turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. I know Pastor George probably asked you to turn more often than I have here. So this text, let's look at First Peter chapter five, verses five and six. I think we're pretty familiar with these verses. Verse five. Uh, skipping over the first phrase, want to get through the to the key phrase here. First Peter five five. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us. We we have the privilege of being a child of Gods that we will experience the glory, such an undeserved privilege that we will be with him forevermore. James 4 6 also says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think we all have heard at various times, I have in conversations, that we can be proud of our faith and of our knowledge of truth. I'm of the Reformed faith, but sometimes my brothers and sisters can be proud of their Reformed faith. We forget it is God who enlightened us to this truth that brought us to salvation. And sometimes we love to win those arguments. We must be very careful because the doctrine of election should crush us. Should humble us. And we should be saying, Why me, Lord? I don't deserve this. And never have an ounce of pride about that. If we're not humble, we're not looking to God. We're looking to ourselves. A humble person is looking for ways to serve other people, not expecting to be served. I want to pause here to say, this is a lot easier to preach than to practice. I know very well. God's going to test me with something with my wife or my grandchildren are coming over this afternoon. They lost their air conditioning, so they're spending the night. So... Uh, Praise the Lord. There's going to be a test. You just preached about pride and selfishness, and it's coming. It's a challenge, isn't it, to live in humility? We must die daily. This is a lifelong struggle. And along with this, we need to beware of a false humility also. One man made this statement, lowliness of mind is the grease that keeps the gears of relationships running smoothly. Let me say that again. I like this. Lowliness of mind is the grease that keeps the gears of relationships running smoothly. We can't create harmony without humility. And the end of verse 3 shows us how to practice humility We get to our fourth point. Our fourth point is to think of others first. Think of others first. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. This word consider means to count, to calculate. It is an accounting term. And we are to count and esteem others as more important than ourselves. R.C. Sproul said, The New Testament sets forth a radical ethic. It sets a standard that is opposed by the customs and practices of every society in the world. It teaches that we should prefer the exaltation of others above ourselves. The New Testament gives us a radical ethic opposite of what is the norm. My friend, this is not the American way. What do Americans say? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Again, it's all about me. If I don't look out for number one, who else is going to look out for number one? And so I must do that. I must demand my rights. Instead, we should be saying, how can I look out for you, your needs, your rights? How can I minister to them? The King James Version translates this verse in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem other better than themselves. Jesus Christ was a perfect example for us. When the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper, what did he do to his disciples? He washed their feet. The Savior, the Son of God, who was going to lay down his life as an atonement for their sins, washed their feet feet. They should have been saying, no, Lord, I'm going to... Well, and we know Peter did try to do that, in fact. But they all probably should have been saying that. This means I must consider my fellow members at BBC over advancing my cause, my wants, my needs. I need to be thinking about you more than I think about me, and, and may that be our heart's desire. It's not about my welfare. It's about advancing the cause of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to promote love and harmony at Baltimore Bible Church. Then the fifth requirement, one verse, we'll get to this quickly, consider the interest of others. We say in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I'd like to read a paraphrase of verse 4. Don't continually let your care and attention be wholly consumed by your own concerns. Don't fix your focus on your needs and importance, but that of others. Verse 4 is really showing us how humility can be expressed. We think of others first by caring for their needs, their interests. And as we get to know one another, we get to know the needs and interests of our beloved brothers and sisters here at BBC. Preoccupation with self is sin. Leads to a big ego. And didn't we just learn last week about Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, excuse me, Belshazzar last week, Nebuchadnezzar before that? Had their lives shattered because of their pride. And they were brought low as good Old Testament examples of that. It's my observation that most problems in churches today have occurred because people want their own way. They want to be esteemed over others. And that's a sure recipe for conflict and disharmony. And when that happens, ultimately, the cause of Jesus Christ suffers. And in my life's experience, I've seen that tragically happen too many times. We're not gathered together today to be served, but to serve one another to look for other people's interests over our own interest. And let me remind you of that verse again in Mark ten forty five, when Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now sometimes divisions are necessary to preserve the gospel for the purity of doctrine. I, I'm aware of that, and, and so we can't just say, never sacrifice truth to preserve the unity. We can't sacrifice the truth of Scripture. The gospel is something we need to battle for to preserve in this church and churches like ours. There's too many churches across America that are closed because they lost the gospel. They did not preserve right doctrine. There are churches that today that are liberal, no longer preach the gospel that once heralded the gospel of jesus christ however there are many divisions that i believe in our churches are unnecessary they're not essential to the gospel there are some things that we can agree to disagree on i didn't always agree with everything at the church i was pastoring but we could agree to disagree at various times paul has given us some important principles for harmony The problem is that we, like the world, want our rights over what God speaks about. We deserve our rights and our way, instead of to walk humbly before the Lord. Harry Ironside told the story when he was a kid. He said, two men were having a quarrel in their church, and one stepped up and pounded on the desk and said, I don't care about the rest of you. All I want is my rights. Then there was an old Scottish man who said in reply, Sir, if you had your rights, you'd be in hell. The Lord Jesus did not come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs. That loud-mouthed man suddenly sat down and said, You're right. And in closing, I'd like you to look at Philippians 2, 5-8. We're not going to expound on this, but familiar passage that Christ is our ultimate example. He puts us to shame when he says, Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. He was a bondservant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus died so we could be saved by faith in Christ alone. So how can I, how can we say, I can't obey the commands of verses 3 and 4. They're too hard. When Jesus gives us a perfect example, I like the King James Version says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ, the mind of God, who displayed in full humility for us how it's done. And the commands of Scripture to love one another ought to compel us. Eight times in the New Testament, we read we are to love our neighbor as ourself. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. In John 13, Jesus went on to say we are even to love our enemies. The law of love, of loving my neighbor, compels us to practice harmony and to practice these relational attitudes and requirements that we see in verses 3 and 4. We can't say... We love others if we're selfish. We can't say we love others if we're conceited. We can't say we love others if we're thinking of ourselves, if we're thinking of our own interests above somebody else's interests. God, help us to melt under the Word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to confess our sin and to recommit this afternoon to building harmony in our home, in our community, in our church. John MacArthur said, If we don't demonstrate love to one another, the world's not going to understand the power of the gospel. We need to love one another. And then I finally close with one stanza of Beneath the Cross of Jesus as written, I believe, by Keith and Kristen Getty that says this, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved beneath the cross of Jesus? See the children called by God. As I stand here, again, I'm still struggling with this. At 68, I've been struggling with this for 68 years. Haven't been saved that long, but it's hard. God, help me to deal with my selfishness, with my proud conceit. God, help me to walk humbly before him, to think of others first, to think of you, beloved brothers and sisters, first. Think of your interest over my interest. So we pray. Lord, we pause to reflect and ask God the Spirit to help us search our heart, to examine our lives, to admit where we have sinned miserably in these areas. And help us to be men and women and young people who are committed to harmony in in all the various relationships that we have. That we might promote the gospel of Jesus Christ That we might open doors of opportunity for evangelism with our neighbor that really irritates us. With a sibling that still irritates us, but they're lost and need Christ. And help there to continue to be what we see here at BBC, a spirit of unity to, to continue. We know the seeds of discord can be Sowed very quickly, very easily, in our hearts and our lives. And thank you for this text, this word, to convict us and bring us to a closer walk, a more faithful walk with you in Jesus name. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church to hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services. Please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.